Tonight's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, one verse from Romans 3, verse 23, and the reason it's only one verse is we're returning tonight to the series of sermons that we left off in September of last year. Uh, When we were in September, we were going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, being guided by its various topics, and we were at the question and answers dealing with sin. And so I'm going to read Romans 3, verse 23, and then ask that Westminster Confession of Faith um, question and answer 14 be put on the screen, and we'll recite that together. And tonight's sermon will be based, of course, on just this one verse from Romans 3, verse 23. That verse says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And now Westminster Shorter Catechism 14 The question is, what is sin? Would you say with me, sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. And evidently, my uh, timing's a little different than most people's (laughs) in reciting that. This past week, I had lunch with a friend in our community. I'd call him a growing friend. We went out for lunch together. And when the lunch was over, we were driving back and had a great conversation about what's wrong with the world. And tonight, if he's listening, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning that to you all. For about 20 minutes, we talked about all kinds of things that were wrong in our world. He noted to me someone who had taken advantage of a handout that he had given to him. We talked about the war in Ukraine. We talked about the fracturing and the trouble that exists in families. We talked about all sorts of things. And we wound up asking the question, what in the world is wrong, over and again? And what's interesting about that question, what in the world is wrong, is that it is a question we don't have to wonder, at least most people don't wonder, whether it has a proper premise. Let me explain to you what I mean. If I were to ask you, those of you who are professional football um, fans, who is the MVP of the last time the Minnesota Vikings won the World Series, you would say, that's a false premise. The Vikings have never won the the, uh, Super Bowl. Did I say the World Series? Well, they haven't done that either. (laughs) When is the last time the Vikings won the Super Bowl is never, and so they've never had an MVP. But the premise upon which the question is asked, so what is wrong in the world or what in the world is wrong, the premise there is that there is actually something that is wrong. And that's a valid assumption to make, I am guessing, and most of us would agree with that. And it's not only a question that's very general, it's also very personal. It affects literally all of our lives. Why do children die? Why is there abuse? Why are some of our leaders corrupt? Why do people cheat each other on Facebook marketplace deals? That's a very personal question for me. What in the world is wrong? To answer that question, tonight I want to go in reverse of how I would ordinarily preach a sermon. I want to start by giving you three options that many of us might have wrestled through, or at least if you're not a believer in Christ, you may assume these answers 
to be right in response to the question, what in the world is wrong? And I want to show you how each one of these three answers is partially true, but when you get down to the fundamental answer each one of these gives to the question of what is wrong, they fall flat. And then I want to move to the answer that is provided by Romans 3 verse 23 and what it gives as the answer to what in the world is wrong. The first alternative is what I would describe as not enough. What is wrong in the world? What in the world is wrong? The answer might be given, well, there's just not enough. It's a problem of scarcity. The difficulty in our world is that there's not enough of something to go around, and because of that, problems exist. I want to give you a book that was written a few years ago. It's by Michael Wordsworth. It's called The Battle for Bed Soy, The Long War on Poverty in New York City. Not too far from where my son lives in Brooklyn, New York, is a neighborhood that's gone, that goes by the title or by the name Bed Soy. In the 1960s, specifically, 1964, when the war on poverty was begun in the United States, that war on poverty found a special application in that neighborhood. It was sort of at the hearts of what our government said we wanted to do in changing this real problem in American culture. There shouldn't be any poverty our president, Lyndon Johnson, said. In 1964, only one of 100 high school students in that neighborhood were ready for college when they graduated from high school. The average eighth grader was two grades behind in reading. There was a great deal of violence in the neighborhood to the degree that people feared to go outside. And everyone believed that the foundational problem in this particular neighborhood, the Bedsoy neighborhood, was that there was poverty. Something's wrong. Over the years, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, and food stamps have improved the quality of life to some degree in the Bedsoy neighborhood. And yet today, in those public schools in that community, they remain some of the worst in not only the entirety of New York City, but in that state and in the United States. And the great society's efforts focused in the 1960s and then afterward on gangs, eliminating gangs, there are actually more gangs in that neighborhood than there were in the 1960s. To quote Mr. Wordsworth's book, he says, the neighborhood is still well known for drive-bys, robberies, murders, and assaults. (laughs) What in the world is wrong with the world? Is it poverty, a lack of something? That neighborhood was meant to represent a great reality about the war on poverty. For more than 70 years, our government has poured resources into that neighborhood, and there are things that really helped. For example, Job Corps began during the 1960s in the war on poverty. But as much as some things improved, the fundamental thing did not improve. And the book goes into great detail to show us that if we ask the question, what in the world is wrong, the answer of scarcity is simply providing more, that things are underfunded, there's not enough of something, whatever that something is, and so we need more programs, more money, more resources, 
they all need, need to be applied to that problem, the book argues it didn't work. Doubling down and tripling down to eliminate poverty and its consequences still did not bring about, for most of those in this neighborhood, a better life. There's still children growing up in that community with not enough to eat, who fear for their lives, and are receiving a horrific education. So what in the world is wrong? Is it not true that if we simply give more, if we would give more money, more resource, more talent, more energy, isn't the application of resource enough? And if I extend that out to many of us, when we listen to solutions about the kind of things that ail our society, this is typically the argument that's made. We need more, more resource in order to solve our world's problems because the problem underlying all of it is exactly that, a lack of resource, not enough. The second potential answer to the question, what in the world is wrong, is that, again, we're not far enough along. It's not just that there's not enough, we're not far enough along. Not enough progress has been made. Maybe what is wrong in our world is we have not only failed to apply enough resources, but we haven't waited long enough for those resources to work. We haven't been patient enough. If we would only allow progress to take its logical, its logical route through scientific understanding and development, then we would eventually overcome the problems we face. This optimism in our ability to progress was very obvious in a very interesting place, in my estimation, that is, in the world's fairs. About the same time as the war on poverty began, that is, in 1962, the world came to a west coast city of the United States, Seattle. If you've been to Seattle and seen the Space Needle, what you should remember about the Space Needle is that it was erected in optimism. It was meant to show the world that we not only have great architecture, but it combines that optimism about our ability to develop this world with to go into other places. And at that World's Fair in 1962, nations came from all over every corner of the world to show off the latest and greatest they possessed in order to say, we can do it together. Let's get together. Let's apply what we're able to to do together, let's progress, things will get better. At one of the first World's Fairs, President William McKinley said, expositions like this, expositions like this, are the timekeepers of progress. They record the world's advancement and open mighty storehouses of information. So have you been to a World's Fair? I'm guessing most of us have not. Because these world's fairs, these world fairs, have become less important over the last few generations. The latest ones are more amusement parks and celebrations of how far we've come. The Epcot Center that some of us have gone to came out of a world's fair. And it does talk about progress, but it's part of an amusement park now. Because the optimism that lay behind... The beginning of the world's fairs 
eventually came crashing down. It was tempered by the space race, by the Cold War, the Vietnam conflict, and everything that came afterward. (laughs) And we don't need to be reminded about our inability to progress to the point that medically we can keep something like COVID at bay. It's not as though we have not progressed. We have. We have better health care, technology, and so on than we have in times that passed in past. So these are good things. But again, the question that is to be answered is, what in the world is wrong? Is it a matter that we have simply not progressed far enough? Increasingly, we have realized as a culture this simple truth. Something is wrong more fundamentally than just we haven't progressed far enough. We are less and less confident that we can solve what ails us through progress together. We haven't gone far enough. That's not an adequate answer to what in the world is wrong. So let me try a third. It's not just that we don't have enough or we haven't gone far enough. Maybe we haven't tried hard enough. Maybe there's just not enough effort. I'm going to put my feet in the dirt that your feet walk when I talk about this one because I'm guessing it doesn't fall too far from where we live. It appeals to a lot of us. Let me be honest, it really appeals to me. I grew up in a world in which you worked hard, and if things didn't work well, just work harder, work longer, be smarter, do your very best, keep going. If you work hard enough, eventually good things will come. Again, I would confess to you that is often my attitude when things don't work. I double down. I think to myself, what did I do that didn't work? I need to do it better next time. I need to work harder. In fact, the most likely reason why things are not the way they should be in my mind is because I'm just not trying hard enough. Does that resonate with some of you? Does that make sense? Or even more likely, if I can tread in your toes a little bit, not trying hard enough is the reason why others have lives that are not better than they ought to be. If these people would just work harder, everything would go right. But here's the problem. Think for a moment about how many things can go wrong on the road to the effort overcoming problems. I, I was noting to someone this morning that my first pastorate was in a community. I think I noted again tonight to a group of people. He was in a community where there were a lot of farmers. And so not long after Karen and I moved into the parsonage, we had to buy a rain gauge. You know why? Because that was the first topic of conversation every Sunday morning. How much did you get? And if you didn't know the difference between three-tenths and four, you should. But in that community... Imagine that you're a farmer who did everything right. You planted the right seed in the right field. You marketed your corn so you would be able to make a good profit. And two weeks before the corn is ready to be harvested, you know what I'm going to say? It hails. And yes, you might have crop insurance, but that barely covers your input costs. You did everything right. And yet the world doesn't seem fair. You tried hard, but it didn't work. Or think of the parent who tries to do everything right in raising their child, but their child grows up to abuse drugs and overdoses and dies. 
I don't make, mean to make that sound callous, but it happens. The working hard didn't work. So what is it that is wrong with the world? The answer is not just that there isn't enough, or we haven't waited long enough, or we haven't worked hard enough. The answer is somewhere else according to the Scriptures. And that's why we read this one verse from Romans 3, verse 23, where it says, For all have sinned and have fallen short and fall short of the glory of God. The first three chapters of this great epistle of the Apostle Paul have made an incredibly important point. Those three chapters have leveled the field of humanity. And we have been pressed in those first three chapters to give an explanation for why what comes in this book doesn't apply to each one of us. Paul has said you consider yourself religious, applies to you. You consider yourself not religious, applies to you as well. All of us are in the same boat in a very important respect. Everyone, Paul says, the Jew, the religious, the Gentile, the not religious, all of them fall under the condemnation of God, and therefore every one of them needs to believe. And he knows that some of us will be tempted to think the need to believe is really for someone else, not for me. You may fool yourself into thinking that you're really not that bad compared to others. I know that might not be polite to say, but if you never sat down, to, uh, sat down next to someone else and think to yourself, oh my word, I'm sure glad I'm not in their position. It's probably because I've made better choices in life. It's probably because I'm a better person. It's probably because I was raised in a better family. And the Apostle Paul says, but that's not really the important question. That's not, thing that, not the thing that matters most. He says the basic question that matters the most is not there. It is, what is wrong with you? And I'm not asking that like a parent might say it to a child. After he hits his sister for the third time, and you say, what is wrong with you? I'm asking it at a more fundamental level. What's really wrong with you? What is it that makes your world like it is, where there's trouble and difficulty? Or to put it this way, I'm not asking you tonight to look over the aisle or across the backyard fence or across our city or even to people in different parts of the world, people that you think, now those are the people who really need to hear this message. There's something wrong with them. You know, the first three chapters are all designed to tell us this message is for each one of us. Paul says, look in the mirror, I'm talking to you tonight. So here's the question. If he has our attention, what does he mean for us to hear? What is it that all of us have? What's wrong? Where does this come from? And the answer is in verse 23 of chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does this mean? Let me explain. All. Again, to emphasize that this is universal, no one escapes. I don't care who you are, how great you are, what you think you've done in life. No matter how nice you appear, this applies to you. You are the all. Has sinned is at the very heart of what I'm here to tell you tonight. This is put in the original in the past tense 
to say that we're not just talking about what you might do. This is true for everyone as part of what you've already done. You have sinned. We have done what God says we should not do. And what God says we should do, we have not. It is the look of defiance in the face of your child. And it is the defiance in your heart that says, I know it is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. Have you never done that? I can think of points in my life where I thought, I know this is wrong, but eh, it'll be fine. Or no one will find out. Or I can make it up later. When sin is only viewed in the horizontal, will I be caught? And this is the fundamental nature of sin. Sin is not primarily the horizontal. It has that effect. Friends, sin is first and foremost an offense against God. Against the holy, just God of the universe. And it is not simply a matter of right behavior. It is, first of all, a matter of the heart. It is disobeying God's commandments because we want to. It is thumbing our nose in the face of Almighty Holy God and saying, I will do it my own way. It is rebellion. It is missing the mark. It is simply doing what is wrong. I fail in my ability to express it more clearly. There is nothing less in sin than an offense against the holy, majestic God of the universe. Do you hear that? Is there any way I can emphasize how offensive sin is to God? It's not a trivial matter. It's not like one of those things you go two miles over the speed limit and you think, well, everybody goes sick, so what's the difference? This is offense at the highest level. This is to stand before God, the God who made you, the God who gives you breath to breathe, who causes the synapses in your brain to fire, whose dirt you walk on and the food you eat, who heats your home and has given you everything that exists, and say to him, I really don't care what you think. It doesn't matter. That's what the Bible calls sin. And to emphasize that, Paul adds, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now these two phrases are meant to go together, the second emphasizing the first in this way. If you go all the way back to the beginning of time before Adam and Eve and all of the human race rebelled against God, there was a point at which human beings were perfect and glorious. That is, they reflected perfectly the glory in the character of God. God is holy. We were holy. God is just. We were just. God is perfectly loving. We were perfectly loving. And all of that was true until we rebelled against God. When we rebelled against Him, we lost our ability to fully reflect that glory. If you want to know what it's like, it's a little bit like this. It's like we crack the mirror that reflects the glory of God. The mirror is still there. There's some places in which it can be seen, but it's far, far short of what it ought to be. And because it is short, we fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that we cannot be in the presence of this glorious God. 
We cannot come. And tonight, if you were to ask me, what is wrong with the world? I would say it's not simply a lack of resources or not enough progress. It's not that we're not trying hard enough. The problem is not there. It is much deeper. Whatever is wrong in the world can be distilled to this fundamental truth. The problem is not out there somewhere. It's what lies in here. The problem is in my heart. It's in your heart. It's my rebellion. It is my sin. Own that, my friend. The difficulty with owning that is it takes away excuse. You know how excuses go, right? You get fired from your job and you think, well, you know I showed up every day late for three weeks, but you know my boss is really kind of a bugger. Or you're not able to pay your bills and you say, well, you know, I know that I spent some money foolishly, but I really should be paid more. If the problem is always external, there's always someone else to blame. Tonight I want to strip that all away. There is no one else to blame. There are injustices in the world. Things do go wrong. But you cannot point to them and escape the glaring eye of God in this regard. All have sinned and you fall short of the glory of God. If we miss what is truly wrong with the world, we will always be striving for solutions that are less than what we need. It's only when we see the fundamental need we have to make right what we did wrong that we'll look for the solution we need. Do you hear that? When the Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is sin?, And it says, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. It is not depersonalizing it. It is saying, meaning to reflect the truth that is found here in Romans 3 verse 23, you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's you. Not out there somewhere, not some vague notion of sin. It's what exists in your heart. That's what's wrong. So it leads me to ask this question. Maybe you're wondering it. If what is wrong in the world is our sin, then how in the world is that made right? You can't help but wonder where the hope is. Is it not human to ask if there is help? In fact, one of the interesting things that is true about all humanity is in the middle of this mess that we have made, We tell ourselves stories about how it can be made better. That's what every alternative is. It's a way of us telling a story together about how things can be made better. But here's the glorious truth of the gospel. God does not leave us to make up our own stories, stories that always fall short. No, the Bible, because of the starkness of sins, invites us to see the great story, the history The truth that God has done in Jesus Christ. Look at how bad it is to see how glorious it is in redemption, the redemption work of Jesus Christ. Just a few chapters later in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
There's two things I want to say about those two verses. The first is, the apostle says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. Of all the ways in which we try to tackle what's wrong in the world, if we do not begin with seeking peace with our Creator through our Lord Jesus Christ, we will never find an adequate solution. That is not to to, uh, disregard all the things that we try to do that are nice and kind for other people. That's good. They simply fail to address the fundamental problem that is wrong with the world. And God in Jesus Christ has done exactly that. He has given us in Jesus Christ the way for us to enter into His presence without fear. The same God who created the entire universe that exists, who's causing the snow to fall tonight, who gloriously brought the sun this morning, this God you can be at peace with according to the Scriptures. And you find peace with Him through Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, put your faith in Him and you will find that peace. But these verses end with a really really striking phrase that I want to remind you of or show you again. And it says, and we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Having heard in Romans 3 verse 23 that we fall short of the glory of God, Paul now returns in Romans chapter 5 verse 2 to say we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? What the apostle means is there is coming a day in which we will stand in the glory of God without any hesitation. That where we came from, we were perfect in the garden, and there was no reason for fear when God came to walk and talk with Adam and Eve. We are headed toward a future in which we will be able to do the same thing. The glory we possess then will be the glory we will have in the future. The brokenness, the shattered reflection of the glory of God in us as image bearers will be restored through Jesus Christ so you will be able to stand before this holy, glorious God and perfectly reflect His glory. Everything will be made right again. This hope, it is not a hope that we create. To put it simply, if the problem is not addressed by how much we have or how hard we're trying or the progress we make. The real solution is when God works in us to change our heart of sin. When God brings to us the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ, and when we have Him, you can walk out of this place With a life that has so many miserable parts, family problems, work problems, children problems, health problems, the weight of the world may seem to still be there, but you will know that the fundamental problem that exists in life has been taken away in Jesus Christ for you. Which means this as well, when we are living at peace With the creator of the universe, through Jesus Christ, it means that even these difficult things that come into our lives, the things that we really struggle with, the things that seem very, very wrong, that lead us to ask the question, what in the world is wrong? Even in this, the Apostle Paul says this just three chapters later, all of these things are working together for what? 
for good. All things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. So lift up your heads this evening. Look to that future. What is wrong with the world? Sin. What is right? What makes it right? Jesus Christ. In some glorious day, Jesus will return to make all things new. And then we will be eternally in the presence of a glorious God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we must confess that sometimes resting in Jesus Christ for our hope does not seem very attractive. It requires humility. It requires looking outside of what we're able to do to someone who can do what we cannot. And that might seem to rail against our sense of self-importance. But Lord, whether we have walked with Jesus for many years or whether we're struggling to figure out what that means, we're thankful for this singular verse in Romans that says, here's the problem, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So look to the one who can renew us into those who are glorious reflections of this God again. Look to Jesus. And we pray from the strength of His work, from the power that He possesses, a power that is able to do more than we even ask or imagine according to the glorious riches that exist in Jesus Christ, that we would leave this place with confidence and hope. Not because we know how every part of our lives and their difficulties will be resolved. Maybe they will not be resolved until we pass from this life to next or till the Lord returns. Maybe this is the situation you've given us in life. But Lord, we can still in the middle of the mess and difficulty of this world look in hope because Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King. And we pray tonight for many who might not know this, who have been looking for all the alternatives and have tested and found them to be wanting and want to know where else they might turn. Lord, we pray that for those of us who are seeking that kind of answer, in the truth of your word, we would find hope, not only in knowing what the problem is, but in knowing the divine solution to that problem. And so we come to you confidently and joyfully. In the name of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, amen.